Hey friends, this is Andy. Chorus.ai is the platform for the vice president of sales. Chorus believes that customer conversations are a company's most powerful but most underutilized and overlooked asset. With every sales call and meeting seamlessly recorded, transcribed, and analyzed in real time, Chorus.ai provides an unparalleled view into your sales and customer success teams. Highlight coachable moments. Uncover insights about your competitors. Proactively identify at-risk deals and so much more with Chorus.ai's elegant and easy-to-use solution for today's data-driven sales leaders. And even better, reps can get started for free today and start seeing real results within the first five minutes simply by going to hello.chorus.ai forward slash sign up. That's hello.chorus.ai forward slash sign up. Remember, Chorus.ai, today's platform for the VP of sales. It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 605 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Coming back and joining me on Accelerate for the second time is my guest, Tim Sanders. Tim is the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends, and Deal Storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. Now, in our conversation today, we're going to talk about several topics. We're going to start by talking about the power of metaphors to help you achieve breakthroughs in your selling. We're also going to dive into the topic of how managers can transform themselves into leaders and what this means for how you as a manager and a leader work with the people on your sales team. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, go to andypaul.com forward slash 605. We provide there a breakdown of this and all the conversations on Accelerate. Before I talk with Tim, let me remind you that today's show is brought to you in part by Chorus.ai. Chorus.ai makes your customer conversations work for you. VPs, sales enablement managers, and account execs alike all benefit from the power and ease of Chorus.ai's platform. Customers of Chorus.ai have seen dramatic increases in their close rates within the first few months and ramp-up periods for new reps cut by nearly half, all while gaining real insights to help you not only sell smarter, but sell better. Chorus.ai is the platform to make the power of AI available for every sales team. So get started today. Go to Chorus.ai. All right, let's jump into it with Tim. Tim, welcome back to Accelerate. Hey, my pleasure to be with you. Hey, it's such a joy to have you back on the show. So, um, all right, since the last time you're here, I've changed up some of my standard questions. I asked guests this one. Big question to open the show. In your opinion, what's, what's the single biggest challenge facing sales reps today? Um, I think they're overwhelmed uh, by technology. I, I think that they asked for a lot of help several years ago, and they've been punished <laughs> with so many tools. It's really Be careful hard for what them you ask for. <laughs> right. You know, no good deed goes unpunished. Um, I think there's just a, a huge seller overwhelm um, with respect to all the different tools that are available. And um, I think a lot of organizations are really going to have to simplify the process a lot more um, and, and really choose the tools that make the biggest difference. So I think that's a big one right now for sales. And, you know, to kind of pull through from our last conversation, I also think that the sales process continues to get more complex 
because buyers um, are continuing uh, to do their own collaboration, the buying process is getting more dispersed than ever. Um, I had a recent check-in with the, the guys at uh, the artist formerly known as CEB, and yeah, the number of decision makers or outside procurement players just continues to rise. So that continues to pose a huge problem. So, you know, it's complication on complication. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting thing about the whole CEB thing with the number of stakeholders who have a say and input into decision-making. But there also is a really interesting study, um, and this this is, I mean, your point about overwhelm is, we'll get back to it, because that's absolutely right on, I believe. But this thing with CEB thing is, you know, there's a report that came out that Discover Org had sponsored about uh, serving, I don't know, 1,200 buyers in 10 different industries, something like that, in the B2B mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was acknowledgement that, yeah, there's a growing group of stakeholders, but as sort of human nature has it, you know, there's one person that really dominated that whole whole process. So I was like, yeah, we've got these all these stakeholders, but yeah, there's still really one person who's more important than all the others that you really need to be focused on. But here's here's the int- yeah, I I read that I got that, you know, and, and and to get if I were if I were if I were Brent Adamson, I would say yes, and that's called the mobilizer, right? So so the the one person is usually not the end beneficiary, they are the the, the internal teacher uh, that's always driving change, um, and 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 oftentimes they're very adjacent, you know, to the actual usage of that product. And and what does that mean? It's hard to get in front of that person. It's hard to develop a relationship with that person through the cycle, right? So you usually end up developing a relationship with the stakeholder who's actually going to use what you're selling, and then that stakeholder is feeding that to the dominant person who you might be in front of once. So so it puts even more pressure um, on sales to have that creative device, if you will, that sells forward on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Hint, it ain't testimonials. <laughs> yeah, what is it then? Oftentimes, at least in my experience, oftentimes it's a really well-chosen metaphor, illustration, or analogy that has research behind it that simplifies why the customer needs to change the way they do business. And and that seems to be something that people can pull forward. In certain situations, Andy, it's a story. But it's got to be a story that fits one of those archetypal stories, right? Mm-hmm. And puts the prospect at the center of that story. Um, I often find that while external decision makers, they fight you on facts and figures, everything's apple and oranges, they can lean into a creative device like a story or a well, and I keep emphasizing a well-chosen analogy or metaphor that has research behind it. When I see breakthroughs on these complicated accounts, that's usually a big driver of it right up there with luck. Couldn't agree more. I mean, the luck, I just wrote about luck this last weekend. Um, Yeah, the metaphor, I mean, the the power of the metaphor, we have all this talk about stories and everybody needs to be able to tell stories and a metaphor is a lot easier and more memorable than- and i think that's what people mean when they say stories right we get confused you know we, right. people think there's a narrative that they have to spin out and it's really like yeah right get, get a really powerful metaphor people remember that 
this is especially true for the technology sales world from SaaS to, to stuff. Um, you know, oftentimes when we're saying, well, tell a story, we go, okay, let's tell a story about how the company was formed. Nope, that's not a story, dude. That's about you. Let's tell a story about how we came up with this product. That's not a story. That's an anecdote. You know, a story has movement. A story has tension. But when you're using a story to sell forward, meaning assume it will be repeated internally, the only way that works is if it is the type of story where the prospect sees themselves as the protagonist. Absolutely. And so that's why I like metaphor because metaphor is safe, right? You're connecting with something that's already coded in our psyche. Oh, yeah, I know. And, 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 and I'll give you an example. So mm -hmm. you mentioned metaphor. I do like I do like a metaphor, but sometimes the metaphor is just a static thing. Like in this case, when I was at Yahoo, around the turn of the century, we had enjoyed, it's true, really was the turn of the it's, century. It's, it's important to date when you were there. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, really, really important. So I was there from 99 to 2005, or okay. as I like to call the Facebook days. So um, when I was there, when the market crashed in the spring of 2000, at the same time, the ad agencies and CMOs of the world decided they didn't want to buy digital advertising like they'd been buying radio and TV and print, right? So mm -hmm. for the first five, six years of Yahoo's Young Life, uh, we sold based on impressions. Right. We're going to put your ad in front of X million people and you're going to pay us Y. And then all of a sudden, you know, one day around the, I was going to say the summer of 2000, everybody came to us at once from the sales field and said, uh-oh, all the clients and agencies want to buy based on clicks now. They want to pay for, for results. And so we did a little back of envelope to see, well, how, how bad would that hit our P&L? Dude, it would be so bad on our P&L, the only way out was to increase our traffic by 500 to 800% immediately. Mm, right. Okay, so, so we had to battle that. And, and let me tell you something, we knew that wasn't the right thing to do because these companies are like, Disney launching a movie or Ford launching the Ford Focus. So we knew instinctively that when we ran rich media, a homepage takeover, um, email, uh, you know, banner marketing, et cetera, with the car in it predominantly, we knew that we were complementing everything else Ford was doing in the real world. And we understood fusion marketing that you kind of have to surround a customer to create a Nintendo. So we like, we need to get paid for that. So we begin to make that argument like, hey, look at this research we're getting from third party, whoever, AC Nielsen, that says that even though a person doesn't interact with an ad, there's some influence, right, on, mm -hmm. on purchase intent. And they kind of push back because, again, they fight facts and figures. Then finally, one of our guys in research, the, one of the more creative guys, the one that didn't go to Stanford, I'm kidding, um, <laughs> hey, easy walks now. into a meeting and says, he walks into a meeting with a crude mock-up of this iceberg. And he says, look, he says, the way to think about this whole thing is it's like an iceberg. The clicks are everything above the water, but what you can't see beneath the water is a brand impression, purchase intent triggers, aha synergy where we're connecting outdoor advertising to TV commercials to, to digital where there's this, if you will, tipping point. You know, Malcolm Gladwell's book had just come out, so that was a, a very good analogy. So we created a really nice graphic for future presentations that would be a key leaf behind, which had that iceberg metaphor, but it was deeply researched where you would see all the things below the water and the research behind them. And the first time we took that to an ad agency in San Francisco, I remember that the account planner claps his hands and says, this is what we need. Because what they all knew is that if the world moved to pay-per-click, 
then these guys wouldn't buy as much digital. Mm-hmm. And targeting was just starting to happen. So, so, so digital was beginning to emerge as the first addressable type of marketing that you could actually reduce cost on over time. So, so the ad agencies knew that unless they were successful at convincing the um, advertisers to continue purchasing you know, uniformly across the board, they would miss the digital revolution and it would be bad for companies. This iceberg metaphor, I got to tell you, dude, it made a huge impact on our ability in the field to influence people that we never got in front of around this issue and to kind of convert facts and figures into something someone's lived with and heard about their whole life. It's just like the iceberg, right? People were super familiar with beware what's below the water. Because if your competitor buys it and you don't, you're sunk. Yeah, and I think that even though, key point you're talking about, even though you had it researched, the power of the metaphor was in just looking at it, they understood it. Yep. It, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like they even needed the facts and figures. They got it as soon as they saw it. They got it. Yeah, right. And it was like again, it was a self-forward device, right? So I'll give you a modern example for those that say, well, what about something later than 2010? Okay. So a year and a half ago or so, like two years ago. Regis, I'm sure you're familiar with Regis, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Co- commercial real estate. Right. They they launched an enterprise product. So for, for a long time, many of you knew Regis as a small business solution. So if you needed a little office, you benefited, you know, from the fact that they set up nice offices and nice shopping centers with really nice break rooms and decent commons. And there was a value. Of course, they were three x, you know, more than than you could get, you know, anywhere else because they charged you for that. And the first thing we did with that group is we helped them develop an analogy. For prospects who came back and said, hey, I, I checked on Craigslist and your price per square foot is 3x, you know, what everybody else is selling. And they developed a very simple analogy um, of the cargo van versus the BMW X5, right? So, you know, the cargo van gets you the best cargo per square foot, but the BMW X5 gives you the best ride. And at a tactical level, that did make a difference. But when they launched the enterprise product, they ran into a brick wall because they're trying to convince corporate real estate managers no longer to to lease buildings for branches for example or divisional right. you know outposts right. and instead tap into regis creating super centers like what we would now think of as re, we work right WeWork, except right. for enterprise right um so the analogy they came up with simple they connected with an analogy or a metaphor if you will and and they just basically use what i call the like device they connected with with an analogy that could trigger fear of missing out we call it fomo in the Silicon Valley, they were able to position Regis as just like cloud computing in 2006. No one gets it. It's coming. It's based on the mass transit law of efficiency. And 10 years from now, we'll look back and wonder why we ever signed leases and built stuff. And once they were able to connect Regis as cloud computing for real estate, it triggered something in a lot of finance managers' minds who corporate real estate work for about how many years they kept holding on to premise and not adopting cloud out of fake fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's actually a, a very simple creative approach. So they basically hitched their wagon startup style to say, hey, we're like this. But they were able to back it up and say, you know, we're not just making this up. Here's where cloud was in 06. Here's where we are. We're at the same place. Here's the people that are missing out on this, and, and, and they, they missed out on that, too, for the same reasons. So anyway, the, the, there are a lot of ways you can do this, um, but I think the takeaway here is whether you um, 
connect with an, an archetypal metaphor like the iceberg or a contemporary metaphor. Hey, we're like Airbnb for farm equipment. I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a creative exercise that makes a big difference because it can be repeated shorthand effectively. Um, and for those of you that are saying, well, I'd love to figure out more templates for this, you know, beyond my own books, there's a really good book by Peter Goober um, called Tell to Win. Yep, yep. great book. And, I read it. That's a good yeah, that's a really good book I'd read um, uh, if I were listening to to, to, to to dig into more about how to connect to archetypal stories, archetypal stories. Yeah, and Peter, big-time movie producer, understood stories, right? So pitching and so on, yeah. yeah. Oh, you sold, yeah, I tell you, selling a movie is harder than selling an enterprise stack, I'm telling you. Oof. Yeah, well, I mean, let's see. So is he still a part owner of the Warriors, or did he sell to the new group? I can't remember. I think, I, I don't know. If uh, if he is, then he's a happy camper, right? <laughs> yeah. Either was a part-time or is, yeah. So, okay. So, last time you're here, you're, we talked about your book, Deal Storming, and mm-hmm. uh, principles behind collaboration to win a deal. Um, since that time, there's been this sort of huge surge in talk and interest in account-based selling, account-based marketing. And you, know, and you come from a world of big deals. I come from a world of big deals, selling to big enterprise. So what's your take on account-based selling relative to deal storming and so on? Well, I think in an organization, you know, you're going to have a variety of different segments, right? So you're going to have the freemium segment, you're going to have account-based, you're going to have strategic, you know, you're going to have strategic opportunity-based, et cetera. Um, I still think that there's a place for deal storming in account-based sales and marketing. I just think that those deal storming teams are smaller and tend to stay intact over the course of time. Right. So I still think with account-based selling, you still need alliances between sales and marketing. It's just maybe those alliances are more focused on system issues like nagging objections, ankle biter competitors, nagging contractual issues that are, you know, adding uh, more days to the small deal time because, you know, deal latency is the worst uh, ever Mm -hmm. Uh, when you tend to go downstream on deal size. So I still think, I think there's a lot of opportunity for sales collaboration. It's just probably not at the account level. It's more at the systems level. Um, but I still think it's a very important piece of the puzzle. And um, the other thing I'd say, and this may not be on point to account-based selling, but what I see a lot say in cloud and, and, and software as a service is I see this notion that you know, we're going to go in and get a very cheap deal. We're going to go in and just offer it to the customer for $29.99 a month to get their credit card out, to get them in the habit of saying yes to us. And we're going to spread out over all 30 of their divisions. And we're going to grow this $29.99 a month um, into a $3 million a year account. It's just going to take some time. Now, that's an extreme example, Andy. Sure. But but I see that mentality in organizations, and it spreads to the younger generation because in my experience, it's much easier to ask for very little than it is to ask for a lot. And it's much easier to win that deal. It's much easier to get on base, especially now that you have all the shadow IT. Shadow IT is some manager who doesn't think to ask permission before he brings a new CRM solution into sales. So he just buys it. So there's that opportunity. Well, yeah, so I mean, I think, love that, right? Yeah, I mean, Gartner's research, I think it's Gartner's research saying that, I think it was Gartner saying that 75% of IT decisions are taken by people not in IT these days. Yeah, and by the way, um, so so let's talk about what 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 comes from that. Um, first of all, um, at uh, I go to a couple of disrupt type conferences recently. So one of the hottest 
startup categories right now is, is shadow IT sweepers. So these are sort of like ways to detect for an IT leader, ways to detect rogue IT solutions in an organization, even at the cellular smartphone level, which is really where shadow IT is blossoming, and yeah. kick them out, turn them off. So here's what happens. You, you go into an account, and you're going to get a really small deal to scale it up. Um, and because it's a small deal, you can close it almost immediately because you're not going through the IT, you know, information security layer, all that crap, because it's not an enterprise deal. Right. Um, so you're in. And all of a sudden, one of your old legacy competitors who's got something that just looks awful, doesn't even work on mobile, they come into IT who's done a sweep and knows about their shadows, and they make a pitch to IT to do an omnibus deal, and you get kicked out. That happens every day of the week. And here's my point. I believe larger deals that take the entire activity off the table may be your only barrier to entry or your only sustainable competitive advantage for continuity. So I just worry about organizations that depend too much on those smaller deals scaling up or in some situations entirely rely on it. I think there's different segments in a business, but we have to... Uh, always be willing and courageous and hungry uh, to go for larger deals that create barriers. Yeah, I, th I think and go through the proper channels and go through the proper channels. Right. So, and I agree. I think I think what you're seeing, and I see this as well, is that there's a tendency to go to sort of the lowest common denominator, mm -hmm. in especially in some of the SaaS business, just in mm -hmm. effort to be able to say, "Hey, we got a logo," especially if the company's in an early stage deal, as an early stage deal. And B, in the hope that they can do the mythical land and expand, which in some instances works, but in your case, as you said, as the instance you gave, the example you gave, oftentimes is a pipe dream. Just look at CRM. I mentioned that before. Just look how Salesforce does it, right? So I think that I, I think there's just a ton of smaller companies that have gone in and taken some piece of the Salesforce value proposition and gone in with a cheaper value proposition or even a freemium or in-app value proposition. They get in, they've got the logo, it's on their website, Salesforce goes to that customer and takes the whole thing out. And not based on cost, but based on, you know, simple things like information security, scalability, that type of thing happens every day. And I'm also seeing it a lot in the HCM space. So you get a lot of the smaller players go in and take a little piece of ADP's pie, whether it's PEO or ES or whatever, and they get in for a hot minute. And then all of a sudden, ADP or a broker comes and they get kicked out just because they're going through the proper channels. So I see it. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that approach. It's a smart approach, land and expand for the right product. Um, but you, you've got to still understand that you're not creating barriers to entry with that approach. It's just too easy to fire you. Well, at some point, there's somebody whose job it is to really care about that, that you need to make sure yeah. they become a customer. Yeah. I mean, I and, and I also think that if we're talking from a salesperson standpoint, I would tell a salesperson, you know, in everyone's career, if you want to move up, you've got two options. You can, you can, do whatever, you can sell whatever's in front of you and eventually become a sales manager or you can always move up and add zeros to what you sell and you can become a sales leader. Love and it. I've always wanted to be a sales leader. Um, you may have a few sales managers titles along the way, but, but, but really I believe our, our ability to ask for more zeros and win that is the way that we earned the kind of income we dreamed of earning when we got into this business. That's a great description. I've never heard it, heard it laid out that way. I love it. I love it. The difference between a sales manager and a sales leader.
Zeros. Zeros, right? baby. There's <laughs> zero difference. would say commas. Commas, <laughs> commas. baby. <laughs> well, but there's a lot to be said for that. But I think that there's, again, is, is, it doesn't seem like we're really encouraging some of that. Because to me, to somebody, the difference between being a, uh, someone who can sell the smaller deal and someone who can sell the larger deals is someone who can create their own rules. That's right. And That's I, right. It's a I, good th- point. And, yeah. I think, and I think this is one of the things that, that to me is really problematic in certainly in, in certain sales environments that are really structured around you know the technology and the quantities of outreach and so on is you know heavily scripted is is you know you got to play by the book and play by the rules and I remember back I made that transition from selling first product I sold was you know 250 bucks to you know the last big order I took working for a company before I started my own company was 50 million dollars right mm-hmm. so there's a lot of zeros there That's um, right man I didn't get it by following the rules every step of the way. I mean, I, no, I, I had no. a boss, you know, I, I tell a story, I had a boss who told me, don't you ever say yes to anything? Because, <laughs> you know, he wanted me to do something. It's like, no, I didn't, that's not the way I think we should do it. Mm. Right? That's not how we should get mm. this deal. That's not how we should sell to this customer and so on. And you got you to gotta be willing to take those risks and, like I said, play by your own set of rules. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So how do we encourage people? How do we encourage the managers to let their people do this, to explore. People, I think people have become so <sighs> anal about this whole thing, right? So, so about, you know, it's true. if you're not doing your you're 50 not, calls, your 50 emails, your contacts, you know, it's like, nah, that, that's not, that's just one way, right? There's other ways to make yeah. this happen. Yeah, activity, activity management's okay, right? Because it guarantees there's not a lot of free riders or no one can be blamed for not, you know, engaging enough to, to make their quota. But I think that as a sales leader, you need to find those who demonstrate loyalty to the business vision, not you, but the business vision. They demonstrate a commitment to competence, not just in terms of the product and the service, but how this organization works, the minefields, if you will. So loyalty and competence. And you need to reward them with latitude and support. What I've just described, Andy, and I know you know this from reading Deal Storming, I've described the leader-manager exchange. It's called LMX Theory. For you Sheldon Coopers that are listening that <laughs> like to wonk out on things, just go on to Google and Google LMX Theory and Sales. And what you'll understand is the sales managers that generate the most sales innovation, which is really important in fast-moving markets, they practice this. So they have exchanges with their people on their inner circle. And they reward this commitment to competence with more latitude. And the latitude is rewarded with more loyalty to the business vision, which is then rewarded by the manager by giving them resources and support, maybe giving them those difficult opportunities that no one else wants to touch. And I want you to think of it, I I can't draw this visual for you on a whiteboard, but I want you to think of it basically as an X. And the X, if you will, is that series of exchanges because I believe effective sales manager um, person relationships function like a swap meet. And, and so I think that's part of the trick too, Andy, is it is about those relationships that are based on mutual trust that allow that manager to let go a little or allow that CSO to let go a little or even allow that CEO to intervene and say, listen, legalese, everybody back off. We've got to be nimble here. Let's take the most competent and loyal and give them some rope. 
Well, this idea of, of an exchange, I, I love the love the metaphor. I mean, I use it because I think it's at the heart of sales itself. Yes. is a fundamental exchange between you and your customer is they give you time. What do you give them in return? Right. That's where it starts, right? Somebody That's gives right. you some time. What do you give them in return? If you don't give them anything of value in return, you don't give any more time. And, and, so and, this, and the other thing too is, that, yeah, you got to talk about it too as a leader. You got to say, I'm, I'm trying to give you latitude here. Demonstrate more loyalty to the business vision in the field. Don't just be the customer shill, right? So that's an example of that well, conversation that right, takes place. Right. And I think the, the critical thing that's not happening is that too many sales leaders, especially I think some of the, the ones that are you know, with less experience as managers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they're so wedded to the activity metrics and the KPIs that they can't, oh, yeah. let, they can't let go Mm-mm. because they don't know it the other way, right? They, didn't, they don't right. have that experience. They don't understand that you know, the flexibility and the innovation that comes out from giving people latitude because they're afraid of it because they're afraid they give one person latitude. Other people are going to want latitude. It's true. And they're, they're afraid of that kind of creep. But I think that as long as we as leaders talk about it and, you know, I talk about this example of career builder, you know, when Eric Gilpin gave Alyssa D'Amato's that major account to go save, they talked about it. They had a competition for it internally. Several people wanted it. He very publicly said she gets this because of these competency commitments. She gets this because of this historical loyalty. She's had two career builder where she's balanced the client's needs, who she's close with, with the corporation's vision, you know, and the plan. So the more he talked about it, the more it began to shape that culture, right? So I believe in an organization, culture is a conversation led by leaders about how we do things effectively here. So you got to make it part of the external conversation with the other people as well, so that they have an opportunity to earn their way into that in crowd and get that latitude. Well, and the key phrase, I think, for me that you used in that, among others, was the competency commitment. Mm -hmm. This is such a high, high barrier, that we're finding for so many sales professionals these days is to invest in committing or committing to invest in increasing your competence you know, right. the range of competencies that you have. I mean, this, this is where it all is, right? I mean, if you, you won't be given latitude, as you said, with this example you gave about uh, career builder, you gotta be able to demonstrate that you can do it or that you have the potential to do it or that you have the commitment to do it. Which, you know, really gets to the heart of how do you demonstrate that intense level of curiosity? Are yeah. you creating a learning plan outside of the company's learning plan? Are you going above and beyond? But really, are you getting better at navigating the complex part of doing business? That's the psychology between people, the the fault lines between departments. Are you showing a little bit of that EQ? That's a big one, too, that can help leaders trust people more to go do things that are a little bit outside of the box. Well, I think that becomes increasingly as we move forward in time with more technology coming into the sales space. I think that mm-hmm. mastering the human element of selling is becoming more essential, not less. That's right. And there's this tendency to sort of dismiss it in some sectors. And we see that some in the Valley, you know, investors that don't want to have, invest in people with sales teams and so on. You, you, the humans have become more important. And if you're the person that can demonstrate the competency in the human elements mm-hmm. of the sales and build those relationships, yeah, the world is your oyster. Yep. Lots of zeros in that approach. There's lots of zeros and maybe it leads to commas. And maybe it leads to commas. Commas leading to zeros, zeros leading to commas. Well, Tim, <laughs> <laughs> we've run out of time, but it's, it's been great talking to you as always. Uh, tell folks how they can find out more about you and connect with you. 
Absolutely. Just visit timsanders.com. If you'd like to download an entire chapter of Deal Storming, 32 pages, Sales Genius is a Team Sport, just visit dealstorming.net and you can have it all. Excellent. And actually, go buy the whole book because it's a great book. I read it. I really recommend it to people. So, yeah, you can start with the chapter, but just go buy the whole book. All right, Tim, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, and friends, thank you again for joining me. Remember, come back, join me for the next incredible episode of Accelerate. Tell them if you get a chance, appreciate it. You go to iTunes, wherever you listen to this podcast, subscribe, leave us a review. We want to know what we can do to serve you even better. So thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 